You are listening to a sermon by Tanner Sherlock. Visit chialphashatterstate.com for more info. Okay. Another quick plug, and this will actually lead into what I'm going to talk about tonight. The small groups are utterly amazing, and actually uh, I've been going to them, and uh, the small group leaders are definitely, um, how should I put this, they're, they're where they're at for a reason. God has put them there. They um, are very, very much uh, inspired by God. God has changed their lives and given them a lot to say. And uh, and uh, so we were talking about the gospel one night and uh, the importance of the gospel in whatever we share. And that's kind of what inspired what I'm going to talk about tonight. I actually changed my mind a couple times. Um. And I just got to thinking, you know, if I get one chance to speak at all, uh, the gospel is what needs to be spoke about. So my first uh, scripture reference is in Colossians 1, 1 through 6. I got a lot of scripture, so you're going to have to bear with me. There's a lot of reading. <laughs> and honestly, it, it can probably speak for itself better than I can speak for it. So Colossians 1, 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossus, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop there because this just occurred to me tonight. He says grace and peace in every um, opening statement to, to every church he addresses. And grace and peace are two of the fundamental principles of the gospel. I mean, the gospel almost couldn't exist without grace and peace. And it just further affirmed that this is what I should be speaking about. It says, we give thanks to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying for you always, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven Whereof you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, <clears throat> which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth in, also in you, since the day ye, ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God and truth. And just as I read in this this first um, opening statement, I mean, like I, I'm just going to reiterate, the gospel was Paul's first concern whenever he addressed any church. Because whatever he was going to say next didn't mean anything unless it was surrounded by the message of the gospel. Nothing that we could say about how to help a church thrive or grow or how to help a person thrive or grow uh, in life at all would make any difference at all without the saving grace of the gospel of Christ. Because it would just simply serve to further make them complacent in this world and to just allow them just to continue on in a comfort maybe that is false, that may eventually someday end up <laughs> letting them down very harshly. Um, Timothy, well, let's, let's go to Colossians 1. Uh, 16 through 23. It's just a little further. I just want to, you know, really ground this, what, what Paul's doing and the importance of this uh, 
to Paul, and the importance is because Paul was led to Christ himself through this gospel, as we all are. Um, Paul, sorry, 16 through 23. For by him all things were created in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say whether they be things on the earth or things in heaven, and you that were at some time alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death present uh, to present you holy and unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and by which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, wherefore I, Paul, am made a minister. Even if you go on into Timothy, it's another opening statement of Paul. This is just a quick verse here, a uh, quick two verses, sorry. First uh, Timothy 15 through 17. It says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, Paul speaking of himself, or anybody that stands up to speak the gospel can say to you. <clears throat> Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth a long, uh, all long suffering, a pattern for them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Paul put so much emphasis on the gospel that even his own personal witness, his own personal story, um, didn't really have any use to him unless it was to present the gospel to others. He wouldn't just present a story of a changed life just for the sake of lifting himself up, for the sake of making himself more in the sight of other people. The only reason he ever would present the story of his life and the change in his life was because he wanted to give other people that hope. And the only way, he knew the only way that they could have that hope was if the gospel was the method by which he came by that story. It was if the gospel was the method of his changed life It was set in stone, a seal upon his heart is what this was. And, and it was very important for him that other people knew this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If there's one thing that needs to be told then, and if there's one thing that needs to be told even now, and, and will need to be told in the future, it is the gospel. So why do we need the gospel? <laughs> I I um I was a little hesitant on this uh, part. 
because I thought, well, this could get a little maybe harsh. I don't know. But I reviewed it with my wife, and she assured me it wasn't terribly harsh. So this is good. <laughs> but I don't believe you can have the part of the gospel where the good news of it, where, where Christ comes and gives you life eternal and salvation without understanding why we need it. There's a, a serious need in humanity for salvation, a dire need for it. Um, we're going to go into Matthew 5, 17 through 48. This is going to be this is a long, uh, <laughs> long uh, excerpt from Scripture, but uh, bear with me again. <laughs> so five, Matthew 5, 17 through 48. Christ is uh, giving his Sermon on the Mount. And it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least of the, one of these commandments and shall teach men to do what likewise, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach all of them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees memorized from a very young age. You've heard this several times, I know. They memorized the Old Testament. Not only did they memorize it, they lived by it. They lived by the letter of the law. These were people you in, in uh, society would look up to. I mean, they were people who truly looked righteous. Who truly, if anybody came up to them, you couldn't condemn them. You couldn't say a bad thing against them, really. Their righteousness was <laughs> something to be admired. Their, their, their obedience to the law of God was something to be admired. But further on and later on in Scripture, it will say, they praised me with their lips, but their hearts were far from me. So Christ continues. He starts by giving you something that the Pharisees would tell you. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. This is one of those things that the Pharisees obeyed so religiously, it, it put everybody else to shame, not killing. Wow. I mean, you think this isn't hard. But then Christ, somehow, on a bar that's already so high, he raises it again. He says, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother Rekha shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring a gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer the gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, 
lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto you, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Here again, something the Pharisees would tell you. You have heard that it was said of them of old time that thou shalt not commit adultery. Pharisees were great at this. They didn't commit adultery. I mean, they had their honor to uphold. They wouldn't want anybody looking down on them. Christ raises the bar again on this law. It says, but I say unto you, that's whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if the right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should, be peri- should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her, that is divorced, committeth adultery. Another one. Again, ye have heard that it was said, By them of old time thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool. Neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by the head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whosoever, for, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whomsoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whatsoever shall compel thee to go, or whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh, and from him that would borrow of thee, Turn thou not away. And one more. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Once again, the Pharisees, amazing at this, enviably amazing. But I say unto you, Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. Do good to them and hate them. And hate, do, sorry, do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth his rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than the others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be therefore perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which is if your heavenly Father which is in heaven is perfect. And that last verse almost concretes this. This call to be perfect, as our heavenly Father is perfect. And it almost gives you a feeling of, wow, how could I do that? If the Pharisees, which are kind of amazing in the way they obey the law, if I can't even attain to that, I mean, how in the world am I going to do that? 
This is the condition of the human heart. Outwardly, we may seem righteous to ourselves, maybe even to others, but our hearts deceive us and veil our eyes from the truth about our nature. Christ contrasts the written law with the Spirit, and that's what that whole chapter was about. At the same time, he raises the bar of righteousness to a level we simply cannot attain to in our flesh. We want validation through our actions. It seems like, man, if we can't get it right, if people don't see us as good for what we do, then, I mean, where's our value? I'm bringing this around, I promise you. Our value is in Christ. But just bear with me a little longer. <laughs> we want validation to our actions to be seen as more than we really are. Our motive for doing the right thing is almost always idolatrous. We do what seems right in the eyes of man to rob God of the praise that is rightfully his. Scriptures even say that every good and perfect gift comes from God. If we're trying to earn salvation, the works of the flesh are hopeless and vain. Remember, Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Unless our righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. Kind of a gross misconception is um, of God, and is there is no need to change of change in our lives, that God is gracious, loving, and would not exclude anyone regardless of belief. Now, God is gracious and loving. Don't get me wrong. But here's the deal. Heaven is a place where the law of God will be made manifest for eternity. So all this law is something, if you're looking forward to heaven, you better be ready to put up with the law of God. But the thing of it is, it is through Christ that this happens. His righteousness will be fully realized in the very being of his people by the power of the Spirit. There will be no room for anything that is contrary to God. If you really think about what Scripture is saying, there is no hope for salvation if it is sought through means of human ability to do good. In fact, in order for us to obtain salvation, we must completely change or be born again. Let's go to John 3, 1-8. Jesus is uh, talking to one of these Pharisees, a very learned man, a very, very, very smart man. And Jesus knows this and respects him. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from, the, come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? A lot of uh, people have actually taken that verse and said Nicodemus was being too literal. It's like that. I don't think he was. Nicodemus, like I said, was a smart man. Smart in scripture. He knew scripture. He knew what that meant. I think what Nicodemus was saying, and I heard this from a, a preacher I watched um, online, is that Nicodemus was saying that, that Jesus was, was promising too much. 
the changing of a person from one being to another, the changing of our nature from sinful to something entirely different. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Like Nicodemus, we can claim to know and understand the kingdom of heaven. We may know and even abide by the letter of the law, but truly our minds are veiled. We think that by our righteousness we ascend into heaven, that we have the keys, and if others are good enough, they will meet and meet our standards, then they'll ascend with us. But as scriptures say, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. So how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? How do we become born again? John 3 13 through 17. And no man hath ascended up to heaven. Sorry. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I hope you're not thinking that, well, man, that self-righteous son of a gun up there, good grief. Honestly, guys, I couldn't talk to you if the same gospel hadn't come to me in some form. And I guess what I'm trying to do now is diminish us and diminish myself so much that all that there is to speak of is God. All there is to speak of is the saving grace of God. Go to Romans uh, 7, 14 through 25. Paul speaks of the struggle with flesh and sin. For we know that the law is spirit, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would, that I do not, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in the flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Paul begins to plead with God here. It's almost as if he's writing this. 
he's coming to this realization within himself, and he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But he also comes to the realization of who has. This is, this is the whole reason I went through this, guys. We need the gospel. We need that moment of thanking God for his salvation through the grace of Christ. We put our hope in something that doesn't depend on something as fickle and fragile as our own merit or might. A hope that is founded and rooted in the unchanging, steadfast, long-suffering love, mercy, and grace of God. Guys, when I think back on my life, and I think even on the things that I still do sometimes, there's moments, man, why would God ever you know, come back and say, it's all right? I mean, <laughs> the wages that I've earned here on this earth are certainly death. But that's the thing, the gift of God is eternal life. And the gift that God has given, you can't ungive it. <laughs> you know, for lack of a better way to say it, it's there. So I have to thank him. Sheer mercy and grace is not about what I've done. It's not, if it was about what I've done, then God help me. It's about what Christ did. And this I find a thousand times more hopeful a thousand times more hopeful, a million times more hopeful than anything I could ever do to grasp for some semblance of salvation. This is something I can't screw up. This is something, no matter what I do, God has given it to me. It's there. This is my salvation. I'm a son of God now. And if you believe, you're children of God too. There's nothing you can do to change that. This is the grace that... All those things that we couldn't attain to, that Christ pointed out about our hearts and about the way we think, this is the grace that changes us, that changes the way we think. It makes us a new being. We aren't part of this world anymore. That sinful man we've left behind. We still dwell in the flesh, though. And while we're on this earth, and while we're in this body, these things will always, always pop up around us. They'll always tempt us. There will be times where we'll hang our head. <sighs> but there will be times, hopefully, that come when we, when we get so down about it and we feel hopeless and we feel like, man, how did God, <laughs> what, did, what was he thinking forgiving me? It's just because it's who he is. And then rather than be down about it, we'll simply say, Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for saving me, Father. We are embraced by God. We can rest in the Sabbath of his salvation. We rest from those works, that striving, that, man, I can just do this, that'll get me in. If I can just be this good, I'll get there. And the problem is, is at every turn, that... <laughs> pulls the rug out from under us. We don't have to do that. God set aside a Sabbath 
and we should enter into it and not forget what God has done for us. This is the gospel. This is why I felt it was important to include all of that before. Because sometimes I think we forget, you know, we think, well, maybe, maybe the reason we need the gospel and we need Christ is to change our circumstances. Well, yeah, we do. And our circumstances will change. When we start believing in God and we start acting on our belief, you better believe our circumstances will change. But it's so much more. This is what Tanner's talking about when he says, don't settle. Don't settle. There's eternity ahead. Don't settle on, God, if I just get this job, it'll make things better. Or God, if I marry this person, it'll make things better. Or God, maybe if I'm just a little more righteous and people see me that way, it'll make things better. Don't settle for that. We're talking about eternity with a perfect God who wants to bring us back into the perfection that was originally intended when Adam and Eve were put on this earth. God's plan didn't change from the beginning either. It was always a plan of grace and mercy. Christ was with God in the beginning. John says, or James says, the Word was with God and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among men. If the worship team would come back up.